I view it as like a, a bridge. Like we just built a multi-lane, multi-level bridge that could connect Bitcoin to the traditional financial ecosystem. And if anything, this will probably get people interested. I mean, how many people out there bought GBTC because somebody told them to and then like really got, I don't know, fully orange pilled, but at least got interested and dove into like what this actually means and what this asset class is. Um, yeah. So th there's a lot of pros. There's obviously some cons, but from my point of view, I just think this is a win for pretty much everyone involved. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Swan Signal Live. I'm your senior analyst of Swan Bitcoin, Sam Callahan, and I'll be your host today. Before we get started with this amazing episode, I want to bring up our partners, Marathon Digital Holdings. Marathon is the largest and most technologically advanced publicly traded Bitcoin mining company, as well as the most energy efficient. And Marathon's primary mission is to enhance the Bitcoin network by sustainably increasing the amount of computational power or hash rate that helps make Bitcoin the world's most decentralized and secure monetary network. So go check out uh, Marathon Digital Holdings. That's the ticker M-A-R. A. Okay, so check them out as well as Pacific Bitcoin. So Pacific Bitcoin is the festival that Swan puts on every year in beautiful Santa Monica. It's happening in October. Go to PacificBitcoin.com to learn about some of the speakers that are going there, some of the side events, um, workshops to learn how to actually use Bitcoin. Uh, this is an amazing conference. So go check it out at PacificBitcoin.com. You can use the promo code SIGNAL today to get 10% off as well as 21% off if you pay with Bitcoin. So that's 31% off tickets if you go right now to PacificBitcoin.com and check it out. And so the number one story of the year has been the approval of these spot Bitcoin ETFs. Um, in my opinion, they've been a tremendous success. And the Bitcoin's price has kind of reflected that uh, over the first couple of months of 2024. It's off to a rocket start. Uh, after 150% in 2023, Bitcoin is once again one of the best performing asset classes of this year. Um, and today we got a very special guest with us. We got um, this, the ETF analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. It's Mr. James Seifert. So James, thanks for coming on the show and sharing your expertise with us. What is up, my man? How's it going? Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, man. So... Um, you were kind of on the ball with this. Obviously, it's it's your job to track this at Bloomberg, and uh, I think over the summer you kind of gave it a probability of ninety percent. I think you changed after Grayscale won its case, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, you have proven to be very very right. So congratulations on the the correct call. Uh, what's your take on how things have transpired after the launch? Uh, would you say this is a success? Um, what are things you would like to see maybe better? Um, love to get to get your thoughts there. Yeah, I mean, um, we went to, like you said, we were at, we went to 50% as soon as BlackRock filed, which we got a lot of flack for, but we were like, BlackRock knows something. Um, and then 90% was after the Grayscale victory and after the SEC started talking with these issuers, mm -hmm. basically giving comments and giving feedback, which was something they had never done before, which is weird. Um, so that's when we went to 90%. But as you said, yeah, they launched. We were right, fortunately. Uh, I would have had to eat a lot of public crow <laughs> on, on Twitter specifically and even publicly and professionally in my job. I probably would have had to quit my job uh, with how vocal we were on thinking these things were going to be approved. But yeah, you, you said in your opinion, these things are success. I mean, anyone who's opining on this and saying these things are a failure, I just, I, I'm honestly losing respect for them in some regards. Mm. Like stating that this was not a success is just a flat out like lie and ignorance of what the data is showing. Um, these things have, on a net basis, obviously we've seen a lot of money flow out of Grayscale's GBTC, 
over seven, about 7.4 billion. But on a net basis, we've seen 5.4 billion come in um, net of those fees. I mean, net of those outflows for GPTC. So no matter how you slice it, the volume, the amount of trader interest, um, no matter how you look at this, this has been an absolute smashing success and some of the most successful ETF launches in history. So how does how does that like, uh, I think 5.4 billion, maybe uh, Jacob, can you throw that up on the screen? Just James's uh, table right here. Um, yeah, so here you can see the totals. Um, you see 5.2 billion. This is as of yesterday, I believe. How does that hold up compared to other ETFs throughout history? I mean, so if you look at IBIT and FBTC, the number two and three on that list there, they are like some of the fastest ETFs to ever cross a billion dollars, right? Mm -hmm. um, and if you look at like just the newborn nine, as we call them, so the XGBTC ones, uh, as a group, they were the fastest ETF in history to cross a billion dollars. Um, obviously, no matter how you slice this, there's kind of an asterisk there. So like if you're just looking at the newborn nine, it's like, oh, you're excluding GBTC. That doesn't count. And you're like, all right, we'll exclude GBTC and just look at a couple. We'll we'll include we'll just look at these individually. And it's like, well, you're cheating because some of that money left GBTC and went to these other products, which, yes, that's true. But no matter how you slice this, this was an absolute smashing success because that number you, that we just had up there was 7.2. Now it's 7.4 as of yesterday. Um that number is inclusive of a bunch of money that was in the FTX uh, bankruptcy estate, which yeah. was not moving anywhere. So that or was a billion dollars, right? $900 million yeah. roughly that came out of GBTC and did not go anywhere. It just went to cash. There was a lot of money in GBTC that were, um, one, people were buying it basically to get cheap Bitcoin because it was trading at such a steep discount. But there were also people that were just trading it as a special situations opportunity, right? Yeah. This thing's trading a discount. I think uh, approval might be happening. So I'm going to bet on approval. And I might, a lot of these people actually went out and shorted Bitcoin and were long GBDC or they were just betting on the approval and were planning to get out no matter what. They didn't want Bitcoin exposure. So there's, so we have 7.2, 7.4 billion out of GBDC, billions of that was money that did not come back into Bitcoin exposure, no matter how you slice it. You also had Gemini, the Gemini Genesis DCG situation where yeah. DCG at one point owned like, uh, I don't even know, six, like 5% of GBTC shares, even more. Um, so they owned a significant amount of Bitcoin that they are likely of GBTC that they have likely already sold. So some of that money is likely from the Genesis Gemini DCG situation. Again, money that's not coming back into other ETFs. So it's even bigger than the net flows would suggest because money has left out. So like the new money that has come into these newer ETFs um, more than offsets, anything that came out of GPTC. And then you have to take into account that the money that came out of GPTC, like I was just saying, didn't come back into other ETFs or other Bitcoin exposure. We know that for a fact on the order of billions of dollars. Yeah. Cause those are like, I mean, some of those things like the FTX bankruptcy estate, you know, those are only, those only happen once where you're going to sell all that. And that's kind of in the rear view mirror now. Um, you brought up the Genesis and the DCG. I actually looked into that too. That it's interesting because uh, there's a lot of dispute over how the creditors wanted to get paid because they wanted to get paid in Bitcoin, right? They they gave Genesis Bitcoin, and then while it's been stuck in bankruptcy, Bitcoin's price has really gone way up, and so they don't want to get paid out in cash at the time of bankruptcy. And so it's interesting because now Genesis um, they have over like 60 million GBTC shares that they're going to sell, but a lot of it, they're going to actually just, the the broker-dealer is just going to buy back the Bitcoin because the creditors are going to get paid out in Bitcoin. So a portion of that is going to lead to actual sell pressure on Bitcoin itself, I assume. Like, wouldn't you say? But not all of it. 
Yeah, so it's fun. Yeah, exactly. It's so people were like, they're going to figure out a way. So part of the problem with these ETFs, one of the things the SEC mandated is you can't do normal ETFs. You can just hand over the underlying asset and get back an equivalent value of the actual ETF share. So in this case, right. you can hand over Bitcoin, get the shares back. With these things, the SEC said no. Um, KYC, AML rules, they don't want brokers touching the underlying Bitcoin, even though they kind of are through subsidiaries, but that's a whole different conversation. Um, <laughs> essentially, <laughs> there's no way to just take the Bitcoin out of GBTC. So the only way to get it out is to sell those shares. And then, like you said, buy that back if they're planning on distributing Bitcoin as part of the um, as, yeah. as part of the bankruptcy estate. So some of it is going to be sold and likely going to come back, most likely in direct Bitcoin spot purchases. The one thing I would step back and say is no matter how you slice it, people are like, what happens with this money when it comes in or when it leaves? Like, how is this working? The, at the end of the day, there are a lot of things that are happening in between and, and intraday on what's going on here. At the end of the day, any sort of net flow going into these ETFs or out of these ETFs is going to show up in the spot markets, whether that's OTC markets or they have to touch an actual exchange. It doesn't matter. They need to go somewhere and they need to get their hands on physical spot Bitcoin as quickly as humanly possible uh, for these ETF issuers. So all you need to realize is that when you're buying this ETF, you are buying it's spot Bitcoin buying that you're doing or selling. Yeah, can we can we talk a little bit about that of um, how exactly these ETF uh, issuers are acquiring the Bitcoin? I mean, you say it's OTC desk. How 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 much of it is coming on? They're going actually onto crypto exchanges and buying some, or have you heard of them buying directly from miners? Or um, and then when do they do it throughout the day? I think if you have any insights into any of that, I'd love to hear it. So I will preface this with saying uh, they keep. I've asked a lot of these questions, and for the most part, mm -hmm. people are keeping it rather close to the chest. Got it. Um, before I even get into like answering how I'm, I th I think about it working, you just need to realize that there's no the the incentives are aligned for no funny business happening, right? Okay. These ETFs. If you're an ETF and you are like not getting exposure to Bitcoin as quickly as it's coming in, that's going to show up in your performance. You're going to drag. It's called cash drag because basically you'll have more cash than you are supposed to have in your fund. You won't be fully exposed to Bitcoin. And if Bitcoin goes on a run, then all of a sudden you're underperforming Bitcoin and your ETF looks like garbage. Or the other way, you could actually end up being in cash and Bitcoin goes down and you didn't go down as bad. That's still not good because what people want is a product that tracks the underlying price of Bitcoin. Yeah. So the incentives here are I want to make sure I have exposure to spot Bitcoin under any and all circumstances, right? So they're going to go out and they're going to OTC markets. They're going to OC, OTC desks, institutional platforms, and basically putting out, um, we need this much Bitcoin. What can you get it for us? So they're basically putting all these, like your Cumberland, your Coinbase, uh, your Kraken institutional desks, anyone you think of trading Bitcoin, for the most part, those desks, these ETF issuers are going to them and saying, we have this much in a creation order. Uh, we need to get this money Bitcoin. And it, they're putting them in competition with each other. Some of them are just going to Coinbase directly and saying, get us this much Bitcoin. And it is what it is. And yeah, I don't know exactly who's doing that. For the most part, the goal is there's a creation cutoff time, right? And this means the ETF issuers need to know when the AP, the APs and the ETFs need to know like how much how much shares are going to create at the ETF. And there's different cutoff times. Some of them are 2 p.m., some are 12 p.m., some are 2 Some iShares is actually... 6 p.m. the day before. So you need to tell them the day before so they can get exposure to the Bitcoin. But what's really happening underlying is like the market makers that are saying, basically putting these orders to authorized participants. So authorized participants are the people that 
actually go about creating these shares. So they're the ones yeah. that are actually facilitating that process of putting cash into the fund and therefore in getting shares in return. And then it's on the ETF issuer to go out and get exposure to that Bitcoin. So once they know that creation units coming in, that ETF firm, say it's Bitwise or ARK or Fidelity, you name it, they know, all right, we have a creation order for this many millions of dollars. We need to get this many million dollars worth of Bitcoin. And they're going to go out and put it and try to get it basically is what's going to happen. So what you need to realize before that though, is the market makers that are constantly out there with bids and asks on these ETFs, right? A market maker is just out there for the most part, these shares, if if you and I, are, if you want to sell $10 worth of uh, any, or $100 worth of one of these ETFs, and I want to buy $100, the matching engines are just going to match us. That doesn't have to touch underlying Bitcoin, right? Mm -hmm. It's when yeah. it becomes lopsided where everyone's trying to buy a little bit more than there is. That's when a market maker will step in and they have set bids and asks. And the market makers are incentivized by that spread. So the bid is X, the the ask is Y, what have you. And they're basically, the they make money on that big, that little difference. So they're out there constantly creating markets. And if they get too lopsided, like if they're selling too many shares or buying too many shares, they're they're hedging themselves constantly with either other ETFs, futures, spot Bitcoin potentially. So they are already like delta neutral. So the buying, the actual underlying buying for the most part is happening before like the actual physical spot buying is happening OTC. There are issues, I guess, because like you need to actually settle those positions and then that could get wonky, um, which is yeah. why you see some of the crazy stuff that's happening close to the like the trading day. Um but for the most part, the buying is happening like throughout the day. It's just being hedged in some different way. And then they're unwinding those hedges and unwinding those trades once those shares are created. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those, those market makers are always kind of benefiting from those arbitrage opportunities as the shares trade at, at uh, either discount or premium to NAV, right? And so, yeah. that, and that's, that's the beauty of the ETF creation and redemption mechanism, right? That, that's what keeps it kind of at NAV and they're incentivized to do that because they make money off it. So. It's pretty brilliant, honestly. Yeah, um, I mean, I mean, yeah. what, what these like these things they will trade at minor discounts and premiums, like you were just saying. How have they been doing? Yeah, just real quick, like in general, how are the ETFs, Bitcoin ETFs, obscenely tight? So the first nice. few days, the first even couple of weeks, there were the spreads were a little wider on some of them, so it was rather quick. So GBTC was the tightest spread. Uh, they were actually trading at a still like a discount, like a few days afterwards, because it was taking a while to arb that out. Yeah. Um, and a bunch of the other issuers were trading at premiums because more people were buying them, people were selling GBTC, what have you. Um, but the spreads were tightened up pretty quickly. So within like a week, um, iShares is iBit and Fidelity is FBTC um, had pretty tight spreads competing with GBTC. GBTC still had the tighter spreads for the first few weeks. Um, and the discounts were kind of going away. Um, and then the last, like after the first few weeks, even all the other ETFs, the nine, the, the total nine new ETFs, they all have relatively tight spreads, like way tighter than you're going to get on most like regular trading platforms if you're not an institution trading wow. spot Bitcoin. So, I mean, we're talking 0.02% trading spreads, no commissions. And then the discounts and premiums are virtually non-existent. Um, they're, they're very, they're very, very, very small. Um, Which is so, just another like, you know, point of why it was such a, a success, right? That these things actually functioned appropriate properly and and haven't had any outages and and trade yeah. with really tight spreads. I mean, that's that's amazing. I mean, we knew this was going to happen. Part of the reason why myself and my boss Eric Balchunas have been talking so positively about the ETF wrapper and why the SEC should approve the ETF isn't like even if we hated Bitcoin, right? 
like the ETF wrapper just works and it's proven itself yet again with another new asset class. This thing has operated flawlessly as far as I'm concerned. And honestly, we knew this was going to happen. We saw it operate flawlessly in Canada. We saw it operate flawlessly in Europe, Brazil, like this structure just it freaking works. Like there's not, there's not much else to say. And honestly, if I'm Gary Gensler or Elizabeth Warren, I was kind of hoping there was going to be a massive hiccup or somebody was going to screw something up. But honestly, it's done nothing but get tighter and tighter, less discounts, less premiums. The spreads are getting tighter. It's trading more efficiently. I mean, it's trading significant capital across the board here. I mean, this has been, um, I, I honestly can't think of anything that's been bad about this situation. Uh, I think some people had higher expectations than they really should have. Um, but for the most part, like this thing has been an absolute smashing success. Yeah. I think one thing that's been disappointing is actually the comments of Gary Gensler. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> to be honest, like even in his letter after the ETF approval, some of the language in there was just kind of mind boggling in terms of being like he said, it's primarily used for for criminal uh, activity and illicit activity, actually. And, and, you know, just I've never seen anything like that at all with like any kind of product approval and have you ever seen like negative language around an etf approval like that with anything else or, or no i mean yeah actually the single security so there's a, there's been a bunch of single security jesus can't speak single <laughs> security stocks that launched last year or the year before okay. um and they're like leverage like tesla so you can buy like 1.5 x tesla on a daily basis mm. and they really didn't want to allow those through either so that's the most equivalent thing I can think of. They also talk badly about um, uh, uh, like just leverage ETFs in general. They're not huge fans of them. They want to make sure that people using them understand um, everything really along those lines. Yeah. But um, but yeah, no, this is this is kind of a one of one situation where they're just like actually disparaging the asset itself. Um, yeah. The ECB crazy, did yeah. some of that too. <laughs> you got the ECB. Yeah, yeah. Out I know. Week, it, was, it was crazy to hear. Uh, Commissioner Hester Pierce come out too, and some of her responses as well as being really critical of um of the commission and and the SEC of the damage they've done by kind of denying these for so long. And um, but I I would say that a different way to think about it is actually a good thing that uh, these ETFs were denied for so long because it allowed for Bitcoin to grow um to a point where a lot of the Bitcoin is now distributed across individuals. Because you do see these ETF issuers gobbling up a lot of Bitcoin. I mean, really fast. And so if it happened earlier on as a percentage of the total supply, it might be a lot bigger. Um, the ECB came out and they kind of turned that into saying, finally, it is incredibly ironic that the crypto unit that had set out to overcome the demonized established financial system should need conventional intermediaries to spread to a broader <laughs> group of investors. And they're basically saying how these ETFs um, you know, make the case for Bitcoin redundant or or just uh, unnecessary, and how Bitcoin is basically given up and succumbed to Wall Street. Um, what's your take on that? Because you know, I have my opinion, but I would love to hear yours. I I fully get that kind of opinion. Um, that's like saying like I don't know, gold ETFs that store gold in vault or silver ETFs mean that the metal is redundant because it's in an ETF and people are trading it. I mean, things get financialized all the time. That's how the world works. That's how Wall Street works. Um, and honestly, it does not. this is not impacting Bitcoin itself as far as I'm concerned. I usually tell people like, this is not a, an either or situation. Like you can either have Bitcoin or you can have the Bitcoin ETFs. It's like, no, this is an end function. Like this allows people who were never going to have 
um, Bitcoin and cold wallets under the current UI, which obviously I think there will be improvements in the coming years. But there are just people like my grandma, my grandmother and my parents, they were never going to have a ledger or set up things for for for, for what this is. Um, I mean, Swan, you guys have relationships with a bunch of these advisors. That's who this is really targeted at, right? Mm -hmm. There are advisors out there who have clients that wanted Bitcoin. Um, and for the most part, people were just getting exposure to crypto, Bitcoin, crypto more broadly, but specifically Bitcoin um, outside of the umbrella of an advisor or financial advisor. Um, and they were just kind of like, yeah, I have crypto. And then the financial advisor had no way to do anything with that. They couldn't rebalance their portfolio for them. Um, and they, fees. and honestly, they couldn't collect fees on it, which is another big thing. Yeah. Um, that's, that's obviously huge. Um, but there were platforms out there. Like I'm pretty, you guys at Swan have a platform yeah. that allowed people to do that. Um, yeah on ramp there's uh galaxy like there's there was ways to do it it just wasn't the most efficient way like yeah you, had to, you had to really want you had to want it and you had to yeah. make sure you had internal um you had to get compliance to check off like there's a lot of things that went into it and uh the etf makes it easier for sure as a yeah, security I, if right? you have an end client who cares about like self-sovereignty not my keys not my coins going the swan or that handheld way mm -hmm. is the better way to do it in the financial advisor, right? But if you're just somebody who's like, you're an advisor or you're somebody who wants to put this in a small allocation to your portfolio, which is what this is mostly going to be used as, I want a 2% allocation to Bitcoin. I want a 5% allocation to Bitcoin. Like if you have like a couple hundred thousand dollars, like, or maybe a couple million, do you really want to be going through all the loop? the hoops to like set up a, a private process. Whereas like, if you just want exposure to it, like it makes so much sense to just have the ETF because it's safe, it's efficient, it's commoditized, like it's super cheap. Like it's really cheap. Um, they're literally free right now. Um, it'll be 20 bips a year. Oh, yeah, forward. There's, no fees. there's so, I mean, it's just, it makes complete sense. So the idea that the fact that these things are put in ETF wrapper one, I do agree it goes against the ethos of Bitcoin, but again, it's not changing anything about the underlying asset Bitcoin itself. It's just giving more people. And honestly, I the way I describe it, I view it as like a, a bridge. Like we just built a multi-lane, multi-level bridge that can connect Bitcoin to the traditional financial ecosystem. And if anything, this will probably get people interested. Um, I mean, how many people out there bought GBTC because somebody told them to and then like really got I don't know, fully orange pilled, but at least got interested and dove into like what this actually means and what this asset class is. Um, yeah. So th there's a lot of pros. There's obviously some cons, but from my point of view, I just think this is a win for pretty much everyone involved. Yeah, I think I think it's going to bring a lot of people in. I think it's going to be that top of funnel uh, to get people interested in it. And I agree, man. I, I don't know why it's hard for people to understand that an ETF doesn't change like the underlying asset it tracks and. Bitcoin is still a decentralized monetary network and censorship resistant store of value uh, that anyone could send around the world without an intermediary. And um, if you want to hold, you know, what I call paper Bitcoin, that's your choice. Um, and you take on the additional risks of doing that, you know, with the trusting the custodian and, and the counterparty risk. Um, but there's convenience to it too. So it's, it's to each their own. And I just think the more products that are out there and available, um, it's just going to ultimately be good for Bitcoin and good for the adoption of Bitcoin. So um, I yeah, wanted to bring up the convenience factor is something that a lot of people, even the Bitcoin maxis that hate these ETFs, they're they're underestimating how much like ETFs in general win on that convenience factor because they already have okay. it. And then even even the people who are completely orange pilled and Bitcoiners, a lot of people have just IRAs with cash in a setup IRA already 
that's at like a Schwab or a Fidelity or Robinhood, you name it. And this just makes it easy. Even if you want to hold all your all your Bitcoin in cold storage and not your keys, not your coins, but you have like a 401k or an IRA that you rolled over, like now this is the most efficient way to do it. Before the only other way to do it was kind of broken. You had to use GBTC, which was great in 2015 if you wanted to get early exposure, but it's been broken since it traded at a 50% discount in the last few years. And now oh, yeah. it's, it's fixed. Brutal. So yeah, there's just plenty of, it's just nonsense as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, you... uh you reminded me of like uh, Vanguard and and others still not allowing uh you know the Bitcoin ETFs. Vanguard seemed to take more of a philosophical stance against it, um, and they actually removed futures BT, uh, Bitcoin ETFs um, after the case. So at least they're staying consistent. Uh, but there's other ones that you know it just seems like maybe they're getting their head around it, or it takes time. Can you can you go into that process? Like maybe I don't know which ones like the the Merrill Lynch's of the world or do they just like take time to list new products like this? And if so, how long does it usually take to, for them to make a decision? Yeah. So there's a lot to unpack here. The first one is Vanguard. This is not the first time they've done this. The, remember I was saying the SEC doesn't really like the super leverage products or the single stock yeah, ones. Yeah, yeah. You can't buy those on Vanguard either. Okay. Um, so this is not the first time Vanguard has shielded um, their clients. Uh, but Vanguard's a little different in that it's like a self-directed brokerage. More, I more akin it to like Schwab or Fidelity or the old TD Ameritrade. You name it. It was like you can just if it's a ticker, you can buy it. That's the way Vanguard mostly operates. But in this instance, they are not. The ones you were just talking about, the Merrills of the world, UBS, Morgan Stanley, uh, LPL Financial, these advisor and broker networks, wirehouses. Um, they have a bunch of financial advisors that use them at varying levels, whether it's just for the back end or they use model portfolios that they provide. Basically, if you're a financial advisor, many of them, they focus on the salesman type of this, the relationship part of this with their end client. And they use somebody like the ones we just mentioned to like custody their assets or do uh, make sure they're, they're not investing in anything bad. Um, they have like a the might provide office space, you name it. There's there's varying levels of support that these different platforms will provide. And for the most part, these platforms they operate not from it's approved, it's not, it's they operate the backwards. It's they're not guilty to proven and they're not innocent to proven guilty, they're guilty to proven innocent. So, like with TD Ameritrade, Swab, you can buy whatever you want. But on these other platforms that these a lot of these advisors and brokers use, there needs to be approval. Um, so they have due diligence teams where they just, you can't just buy something because it's listed on an exchange. It needs to get approval from this mm -hmm. due diligence team, um, whether it's an actively managed fund or a passive fund, there's different processes and every single platform has a different process. Some say we're, we need three months of history. We need to know this about the bid ask spread. We need to do due diligence on how the actual legal structure is set up. So there is no like cookie cutter. You need this, 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 and that. And then all of a sudden you're going to be on every single platform in the US. There are some platforms in the US that are just never going to allow these things, or it might they might have literal years of, of history requirements. Um, hmm. So um, there, there's usually like, they want to see some certain level of liquidity. They want to see certain level of assets. They A lot of them, some of them will say, if you don't have any, as many ETFs, like you need to have five ETFs in total before we'll let you on our platform because we want to make sure you're in this for the long haul. We don't want to have to deal with liquidating funds. Um, so there's all these different things you have to look at. Um, but for the most part, I mean, these have been smashing successes and almost all of them will be candidates to get on these platforms at some point. And many of them are already on the platforms as we're seeing. I've seen, I saw a news story today that another platform added uh, for these ETFs. Um, so oh, there's yeah, a lot of, there's a lot of platforms out there that have already added these things. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, which is the more the merrier, you know. <laughs> well, the, the other yeah. part of this is it's like um there's also levels. So they so they started this basement level where like you cannot buy this under any circumstance for your clients. And then there's multiple levels in between. Um usually but we'll call that middle area like the the bottom is the red light, the middle is the yellow light where like if your client asks for it, you can buy it for them. Um, if you jump through these hoops explaining why you're doing it, fill out this paperwork and explain why you're buying it, you're allowed to buy it for them. And then, but there's different, that's not just, there's all different levels in there of like caveats, what you can and can't do and what's required. And then there's also a top level where like you can literally pitch it to your clients. So like, I don't know if any platforms are fully there. It's like solicited versus unsolicited buying. Um, but it's basically like I'm an advisor and you're my client and I say, hey, look, I think it would make a lot of sense if we put 2% of your portfolio into Bitcoin. The I have these ETFs light. that I can yeah. choose. Exactly. That's like, I can actually suggest it. Whereas most of them right now are going to be more in like, Sam, you come to me, you're a financial advisor and you're like, hey, James, I want some Bitcoin in my portfolio. What would you recommend the weighting to be? What ETF should I buy? Things like that. And then you'll say, okay, we can buy this many ETFs and they'll go through it. Um, so there's varying <laughs> levels of approval. It's not just a light switch it's not turned on and off so the, the they'll move up those levels potentially over time and then some there's some platforms that are never these etfs are never going to be at that green level that's just the way it's going to work got it i imagine like a like an orange pilled financial advisor who works at one of these firms who only allows unsolicited and they're just <laughs> waiting for the client to say it like can you buy bitcoin <laughs> like thank you yes let's do yeah, it yeah. you know <laughs> um i had a question about one of the problems I think that we've run into, and I think it's a silly problem, um, is unit bias in Bitcoin, where somebody comes in, right? They think they can only buy one Bitcoin. They say it's too expensive. I can't afford a Bitcoin because they don't know it's divisible. And it, it deters people away. And actually, a lot of times they go into some of these other altcoins that you know seem are seemingly cheap in price because it's just you know a lower unit. They have a couple billion tokens outstanding. Um, yeah, exactly. But they don't know these <laughs> dynamics with the supply. Um, with the ETFs, it, why why didn't one of these ones like really take advantage of it? Because they can like issue shares kind of arbitrarily, right? Like pick the number. Why wouldn't they just pick the lowest one to kind of solve that problem of unit bias? And somebody could look at their shares and say, like, oh my God, this one's only you know five dollars a share instead of the other ones that are forty-five. And and yeah. it would attract more, uh, you know, retail investors that way. Like, I'm just curious. Yeah. So the single digit one, you, if you go below a certain level, like you're out of compliance with the um, exchange rules. So you actually have to be oh. above a certain dollar amount for your Bitcoin for your Bitcoin price for your share price. So if you look yeah. at those leverage ETFs I was talking about before that are like three x levered, if the thing goes up twenty percent in a day or down twenty percent and it's three x leverage, then you're all of a sudden you're down sixty uh, percent. And like what they'll do is they'll do stock splits or or um, or inverse splits to basically bring the price back up or bring it down. Um, so it definitely exists. Some of these guys went at basically 1,000, one 1,000 of a Bitcoin. So you're at like, that, yeah. okay, $45 or $51, what have you. A lot, a typical price to start at for an ETF is like $20, $25. That's what a lot of them did. The problem is the way that the pricing and the, the fees work is they take a little bit out. So it will never stay fully in line without those splits you were talking about. Um, but for the most part, there's like, you can go too low and then also you can go too high. Um, the price. So, and also if you're a trader an institution, the higher handles actually make sense because they're not trading on a, they, they like right now, it's just like a trade, a commission fee. If anyone pays a commission fee, 
Um, for the most part, it's not, but like institutions still pay uh, like per share in some cases. Oh. So like it might be whatever. So like they like big round lots. So if I can do a, a lot of a hundred shares and these things are a hundred dollars a piece, I, as an institution might prefer that, especially if it's more liquid than something trading at uh, a much cheap, lower handle as we call it. Um, yeah. so it's, it, it's just unit bias. It really makes no sense. And then like, for the most part, round lots tend to trade better. So a hundred share lot or thousand share lot they just tend to trade with better mechanics essentially just the way the the wall street works i mean uh, exactly um so th there's there's pros and cons to everything but for the most part people did look at it like some of them are trading right around one one thousandth of a bitcoin and mm -hmm. some of them just started at 25 dollars and let it go uh, but for yeah. the most part they will all give you almost the same exact performance they're gonna they and they all are giving basically the same exact performance yeah i, I noticed that pretty much is all tracking the underline right yeah. Um, Jacob, can you throw that table up for a second again? Um, I just wanted to check Grayscale. Okay. So Grayscale still has $22.7 billion in assets under management right now. Yep. Even with all those outflows. And you can take it off now, Jacob. Thanks. Um, you know, they, they have the, the expense ratio at one5 percent right and so it's much 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 higher than the other etfs and a lot of people were saying like oh there's going to be all these outflows and there have been for all those dynamics you mentioned earlier like the the trade that was happening the arbitrage trade that was done very successfully by a lot of traders probably um there was the bankruptcy of states um there was probably a decent amount of flow going out into those cheaper etf alternatives but there's still 22 billion dollars and the next highest is blackrock at five um 6.5 oh it's 6.5 now wow. yeah fidelity is almost at five got it so i guess what i'm saying is was do you think grayscale was intelligent to keep their fee at this level and it seems like they have a really 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 big lead start um and it's gone down but it's still pretty hefty that, that's a pretty <laughs> it's a lot of assets under management and like how long do you think it's going to take before these other ones overtake it um, and then who is staying in GBT in, in GBTC right now? Is is it all just lazy retail investors who just don't even know about fees and they just don't care? They don't want to pay capital gains. Like it's a lot of money still sitting in there. So anyway, uh, a lot of questions there, but just let me yeah, hear your thoughts. <laughs> I'll riff off it. Basically, yeah. I think a chunk of it, undoubtedly, there's a lot of money in there that is the unknowledgeable investors that you were just talking about that don't even know what the fee is probably don't even realize this thing converted to ETF. They bought it because it was the only way to buy Bitcoin five years ago. And it's just sitting in their account and they're not going to touch it for a very long time. There's people out there like assets and these things tend to be very sticky because people just don't want to sell them or deal with it. Um, the people, there's also people who own this in a taxable account and they are sitting on massive gains, um, particularly those if they bought within the last year, like if they bought it in 2023, they could get hit with short-term capital gains. So a short-term cap gain gets hit at your like, your um income yeah. your income level your highest tax bracket um so like if you're in like a 30 percent something tax bracket you're not gonna sell gbtc to save 1.5 percent per year until mm -hmm. potentially maybe you'll do it if you're gonna get a cap gain a long-term capital gains which is 15 percent, 20 percent if you're in the highest bracket that might be more palatable to you but even then you're still cutting yourself off at the knees with a 15 percent cap gain so people in taxable accounts likely haven't sold yet um, who knows if they will. Uh, but I think we will see uh, at some point over the years, some of this money will pour out as people realize they can incur long-term gains versus short-term gains. 
But going back to Grayscale, I personally think the fee is too high. I understand why they did it. I'll explain to you what their thinking was. Um, if you're, let's just say this thing. So this thing was the thirty billion dollar fund when it can when it converted roughly. Um, let's just say it was ten billion, just for math's sake. So they were earning two percent a year. That's two hundred million dollars a year, right? And then in order to compete with everyone, when they realized what the fees were going to settle at. Right now they're all free, so like the limit doesn't. You can't divide by zero to figure out how much <laughs> what the multiple is on more expensive GPC is. But they're free for six months, and they all have like fee waivers going on. So these things are very very cheap. But even if they got down and were competitive on fees, they would have had to come to twenty bips, roughly twenty five bips maybe. But we'll say twenty bips. So if they cut their fee from two percent to twenty bips, point zero point two percent, you're taking that two hundred million dollars a year, and you're getting two million dollars a year. So if you're making, if you're, if you're out there and you're making $200,000 a year, and then you're like, in order for me to like be good here, I'm going to have to take a $2,000 a year salary. Like it's hard to do that. Like it's very, Absolutely. like, I, it, like if you think about it from that perspective, it's like, all right, I understand. They're like, well, they're greedy. And it's like, no, they have a business to operate. They have a lot of people working there. This is capitalism. They provided a product that people could get exposure to Bitcoin easily on the traditional financial rails years and years and years before anyone else made it viable. Um, and they, if without them, we wouldn't have the ETFs arguably because they won the lawsuit. Agreed. Agreed. My argument would be like, you still should have come a little bit lower. Um, but the math there is like, I dropped 25% from 2% to 1.5. And then I, and I know they knew for a fact they were going to see billions in outflows. If you talk to them, they would have told you, we expect to see multiple billions in outflows. I don't know if they would have said we're going to see $7.4 billion in outflows in just over a month. Probably not. <laughs> this is probably more than they were expecting. It's a little bit, it's more than I was expecting, but I also expected them to be more competitive in the fee. I thought they'd get down to 60 bips, 69 bips, something like that. Uh, and they haven't. That said, in the ETF world, this is something I've said for over a year now. I thought what they should do is cut the fee to something somewhat respectable, get under 1%, and then launch a duplicate product. This has happened many times in the US ETF ecosystem where an ETF comes to market. It's way more expensive, emerging markets, the first gold ETFs, you name it. And then they just never drop the fee because the first the first ETF typically has the most um, trading volume and liquidity. And traders don't care about the fee because the fee comes out a little bit every single day. So if you're in a short-term time period, if the spreads that we were talking about earlier, the discounts and premiums are way tighter, you it's a way more efficient trade if you're going in or out to use a way more expensive product as long as you can trade in and out quickly and anonymously. Uh, but if you're holding for the long term, it doesn't make sense to hold something like GBTC right now, to be honest. But if you're trading short term for a while, it made sense. But now you have iBit from BlackRock that's trading more than it on a regular basis, or at least competitively. Same with Fidelity's FBTC, and they're not in as strong a position. Mm. What those other guys have done is they launch a cheaper product that does almost the exact same thing that is way more competitive on price. We saw that there's multiple gold ETFs. So GLD from Spider, um, they launched GLDM which is like a cheaper, it's called gold portfolios. It's It has the lower handle like you were talking about. The fee is like a quarter of the fee of GLD, the first gold ETF. IAU did the same thing, which is another gold ETF that competed and then got undercut by GLDM. And instead of doing and cutting their fee, they launched IAUM, which is a mini shares of IAU, which does the same thing. It's a lower handle and charges way lower fees. So so they just make those to say like, hey, but we did this and kind of Yeah, thing. so if you, if you want out, it's basically rather than getting... Rather than getting eaten alive by the market, I'm going to cannibalize myself. I'm going to yeah. I'm going to cannibalize myself, which is Got all it. the biggest ETF issuers. The ETF ETF world is a cutthroat world. Fees are king. Low fees are king. 
And it, you basically, it's either I'm going to, I'm going to cannibalize myself or I'm going to get eaten by the market. So for the most part, that's what people do. I think that's what Grayscale should have done. I think they should have launched a portfolio product. I think I would have lowered the fee a little bit more, but let's be honest, like they're doing just fine. Like you said, the $23 billion in assets, like they are not, they're, they're doing just fine. And honestly, we, we should all thank them. If you wanted a Bitcoin ETF or were a fan of Bitcoin ETFs, so we wouldn't be here without them. Um, but yeah, I, I think the fee was a little high. That was a really long winded answer, but they're, no, <laughs> it's, it was good. It was good. That's exactly what I wanted. And I think you're right. I think they do deserve a lot of credit for, for taking the sec to court and, and winning. I mean, I always sympathize with their case. I mean, it made no sense to me that they approved the futures, um, and not, and denied the spots. And so it's, it was it's, broken it, logic. Yeah. It's, it's, it's broken, broken logic. logic and, um, it's good to see like the the court systems work, you know. <laughs> it was very <laughs> encouraging. Um, and I wanted to bring up like you mentioned the gold ETFs. We have seen like a pretty amount of uh, outflows out of gold ETFs as we've seen flows into the Bitcoin ETFs. Now I'm not saying like the uh, out the flows are going directly out of the gold ETFs and into Bitcoin, but it is interesting uh, dynamic to see at play. What do you make of it? Um, I I so. So one of the thing, one of the caveats I will say is everyone's like, all all the advisors need to do is every advisor in the world needs to put one percent or two percent allocation to Bitcoin, and like Bitcoin's going to hit a, a billion dollars a coin, what yeah. have you, right? Um, I heard this. I've I've uh, since I've been a professional covering this market, I've heard the same thing about gold and gold ETFs, right? So one, I would I would dampen that a little bit on like when people are talking about it. That said, I think. Bitcoin is going to be like the millennial Gen Z class of gold, in my view. That's the way I view it. I'm a little more pro Bitcoin. I believe in the store value um, story and logic uh, of Bitcoin, um, among other things. Baltunas is a lot more neutral on it. Um, but for the most part, like it makes sense to me that it could find that place in the portfolio. The thing is, right now, it's unique is you have it. It's being used in two ways in portfolios, right? It's being used as... Um, a portfolio diversifier, right? Like yeah. no matter how you slice it, if you look at putting Bitcoin in a portfolio, one of the ways that you analyze how well a portfolio does, obviously return, that's the one thing most people care about, but you also care about um, risk adjusted returns. So like how well does your performance do for the amount of risk you take on or the volatility? And if you add Bitcoin, if you talk to a layman, like they're going to be like, oh, that obviously just screws you. Like, yeah, it increases return, but it increases your, vol your volatility too. Um, and the answer is no, because it tends to be uncorrelated. And what you do in these portfolios, the way that most of these advisors were talking about is they are going to invest in something with a set goal. Like I talked about 1%, 2%, 5% allocation. When Bitcoin goes on this 100% runs, they're going to be selling it to get back to that allocation, back to 5%, which people hearing this are going to be ripping their, want to rip their ears out. <laughs> but that's just the way that portfolio diversification works. Right. On the flip side, when this thing, when this thing drops 80%, which is going to happen if history is any guide, they are going to be buying this thing. Um, so multiple people are going to be using it different ways. It will be used in portfolios. In some cases, we're already seeing it start to happen. Model portfolios are starting to add it. Um, that said, if you look at like gold ETFs right now, so Bitcoin ETFs were around, what is our AUM? Uh, 40 billion, just under 40 billion in the U S it's like, um, gold ETFs are just under a hundred billion. So mm -hmm. they're already like getting close. But again, a lot of that came over 30 billion of the number we're talking about came over came from, from GBTC. From GBTC. Um, but yeah, um, all precious metals ETFs are 105 billion and gold is you're right. It's down at 91 billion. So it has seen, uh, some outflows over the last, and those are months. assets under management. That's not market yes. cap. It's, okay. Yeah. But market uh, cap and assets under management are roughly the same, are the same thing for ETFs. 
Oh yeah, because um, they're just the shirt. Got it. Got it. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. I. Uh, it's interesting what you said. You know, the rebalancing because I always, for in my mind, I think about it on the way up, right? Like if they have a five percent allocation, Bitcoin's going to rocket up, so they'll have to sell some. But I guess it will happen on the way down as well. If Bitcoin drops, there will be kind of rebalancing too. Yeah, yeah. one of the things I've been saying that um, some people agree, some people disagree. I, I I'm staunchly of the opinion that I think these ETFs, if they get the type of uh, adoption, I think they could. I think they could pass gold ETFs in the next five years. Um, but I, I I view like gold ETFs as like the upper level. Like I don't think these Bitcoin ETFs are going to get much more than one two percent of total U.S. ETF assets. So U.S. ETF assets are like eight trillion right now. Mm -hmm. So I don't think they're going to go above that. But one thing I do think they will do like is ever? decrease the decrease the volatility of um of Bitcoin itself because of yeah. the, the the rebalancing I was talking about. There's going to be there's going to be buyers into there's going to be sellers into rallies and more buyers into dips than there typically has been in my view as as it becomes more financialized and commoditized by advisors. Um, and more liquid, and, yeah. right? It kind of increases the investor base. And then you talked about those market makers making those trades all the time. That that increases the liquidity too, right? There's a exactly. lot of activity you have, going you have, around. You have the biggest traders in the world and and ever. I, I think 2% of US ETF assets, which again, assets are growing. Equity market grows, bond, bond market grows, uh, ETFs in general take in flows. So I think like an upper bound for these Bitcoin ETFs is probably like 2% of assets over the next like decade. Um, that's my thinking. Obviously, like maybe I'll be wrong. Um, my prediction for assets by the end of 2024 or um, net flows was um, I thought we'd see 10 to 15 billion and we're already over five in a month and a half. Yeah, I, thought, so, I thought over so, 10. I was like, it's probably going to be over 10. But yeah, I was like 10 to 15. Like I, I was like, there. I'll take the over on 10, under on 25 on a podcast I was on. Um, <laughs> not looking great right now, but yeah. <laughs> well, it depends, you know, if you hold Bitcoin or not. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that was one of my questions. So thanks for answering that. You know, I, I think there's a lot of predictions out there. Um, I think Standard Charter put out one. Uh, it's like $100 billion, which I think a lot of people like gawked at it. I mean, fair enough. But like at this rate, I mean, it's kind of crazy. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, in assets, particularly if Bitcoin goes up, I guess $100 billion isn't completely insane. But I would, I will take the under on that all day. Yeah, I'll, day. I'll probably take the under on that too. But yeah. I feel like I've seen crazier things. Yeah, one um, of the things that a lot of people confuse is like assets versus flows. So I constantly have people on Twitter talking about assets versus flows and volume versus flows. Like, yeah, volume. So yeah. <laughs> people are like, it traded this much. Why did it only take in a certain amount of money? And it goes back to what we were talking before. Like, one, you can match people on exchange. It doesn't need to touch the underlying Bitcoin. That's the beauty of ETF. Like, you can just trade shares on the secondary market. So, so ETFs were invented by like as a commodities warehouse thing. You can think of ETF shares as a receipt for your underlying Bitcoin. So in, in back in the olden days, the way they did commodities warehouses is like you delivered gold and it was stored in a vault or you delivered wheat somewhere. And like, instead of getting the wheat, they just stored it for you. And you had a receipt that said, I have this paper receipt that says I'm good to get like this much wheat or this much gold. And basically rather than trading the physical asset, you just traded the shares back and forth, which again, for Bitcoin, isn't that critical of a thing, but for gold, it's massive, right? Or for commodities, it's rather massive because you don't have to physically move these things back and forth. Mm -hmm. Um, so that receipt process means that like you can trade those pieces of paper and not touch the underlying assets. So when people are asking about the volume being so high and not flows, that's, that's a good thing. It means these things are very liquid. And then assets are a component of both price 
and flow. So if you take in new money today, we're estimating how much money came in based on the change in, in the shares outstanding. That's flow. That's money that came in. That is raw, unadulterated demand. Like that is money coming into the, the, the fund or leaving the fund. Assets are incorporated of two things. How much has the underlying price changed of the Bitcoin and how much money has come in or out? So like that's one thing that uh, I feel like more people in the crypto world could could like really wrap their heads around. It's like assets are impacted by price and flows. Flows are only impacted by like fl they, they are themselves. That's money coming into the fund or out of the fund. Yeah, that's that's probably helpful for a lot of people when they're reading your 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 <laughs> Kentucky Derby charts uh, getting updated. <laughs> Um, the last thing I wanted to end with was just, um, you know, you mentioned Eric, uh, who you work with closely. He said he's neutral, very, very, uh, smart guy and big fan of his. And, um, he said he's kind of neutral on Bitcoin. And, um, I feel like a lot of people on wall street or who work in traditional finance are still kind of, um, you know, they're maybe more open to the idea of Bitcoin, but they're still not really there, but you got, you got there. It seems like you, you kind of are more bullish on it or kind of better understand it so maybe just end with like how did you get involved with bitcoin why why do you think it's important um and then what would you say to maybe uh a fellow cfa a lot of my friends who are cfas uh have trouble understanding bitcoin uh, admittedly so uh maybe yeah. the third part that we'll end with what would you say to another cfa about why maybe bitcoin uh do you have an be? hour here to, for me to answer this question <laughs> <laughs> i'm just trying to keep you here man yeah yeah, yeah. no uh so I'll, okay. I got, so my, I've told the story before. I think I've told you this before. My, um, my freshman suite mate is, uh, we, my freshman suite mate in college, my spring semester of my freshman year put Bitcoin mining software on my laptop that I am almost 100%. I am 100% convinced crashed my laptop because I was mining Bitcoin <laughs> on, a on a laptop with a CPU. Uh, wow. At the time, he wanted to use it on Silk Road. I had no idea. What, I was like, sure, you can like use my laptop to get magic internet money. And then after that, I was like, I hate this Bitcoin thing. Like, screw this guy. <laughs> I lost a 12-page paper. Yeah. <laughs> we ruined my, that. I, I And uh, my parents, I told my parents this and we're like, oh, we still have that computer. So, um, whoa, yeah, it's fried though. I, I'm going to see what, I, I got to look into it. Yeah, yeah, it was only on my computer that. for, the mining software was only on my computer for a few days, but it was spring of 2011. So. Um, it's a lot of blocks in those three days, man. Yeah. I don't know. That might be worth yeah. it. So my my dad's looking for it, but I, I'm pretty sure it's it's completely kaput. It was blue screen. You couldn't do anything with it. It wouldn't even open. Mm -hmm. um, maybe. We'll see. Maybe. Um, yeah. That worth, said. Worth a look. Worth yeah, yeah. Kathy, Kathy Wood um, orange pilled me in a way. I was at a oh. TradFi conference in Chicago in the fall of 2016. Um, and she gave a speech that she wrote a white paper on Bitcoin itself, like the investment thesis, how she believed it and how she yeah, ringing it. the bell or on a new asset class. Is that the name of it? Might have been. It, yeah. This was 20, this was they wrote it in 2016 or 2015. Yeah, I, think, I think it was. I, I read it in 2016 for the first time. And that's when yeah. I first started getting interested. I bought my first Bitcoin in early 2017 um, and I moved over to research covering ETS, but I also covered commodities. So I reported to two people, Eric Bautunas and Mike McGlone. And Mike McGlone in the fall of 2017 came to me and I, cause I worked for him and Kevin Kelly, ironically, who's one of the founders at Delphi digital. Yeah. Um, and he was like, do you guys know anything about Bitcoin or crypto? And me and Kevin had like, he knew he heard us talking about it all the time. He's like, we need to cover it. Um, so nice. that's how I started covering it, um, nice. from a base level. That's fun. Um, 
yeah, so the funds overlapping with covering Bitcoin directly is is crazy. If I'm talking to my fellow CFA brethren, um, I, my, I, I, it's hard because it's I, I don't really I very rarely try to orange pill people. I just say, like, look, this is my view and believe it or don't. But this is likely what I think is going to happen. Um, people dunk on me when Bitcoin goes down and then they ask me if I'm selling when it goes up. I'm not allowed to buy and sell it anymore because I cover it. So I haven't been able to really buy or sell anything for many years um, mm. as far as Bitcoin goes, unfortunately, or fortunately, it makes me less biased, I guess. But part of me wishes I could have <laughs> bet, bet on this when we were making that call <laughs> that the ETF was going to get approved. But no, no such luck. Um, I mean, my argument is simply like, look at the money supply, look at inflation, um, look at what's going on in D.C., um, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of just completely opting out of the system. I think that it should try to fix the system, but this is one way to like protect yourself. Um, and I, I tell people this is a risk asset, right? Like this is right now, I view it as a call option on a store of value asset. Like this could be a new monetary system, potentially if it's adopted by more and more people, there's still a chance that I don't think it'll completely fail, but there's a chance that it could fail and not become that thing. Um, so I view it, like I said, as a call option. It could become rather worthless at some point down the line still. Um, I think that the odds of that have gone significantly down since the ETF approval specifically. Um, but I, I just tell people to think about that. Like the, there's there's a lot of potential upside here if if everyone who's working towards this actually is successful in doing what they're trying to do. Um, yeah. 21 million cap is very easy for people to understand. Inelastic supply. Um, and if you can increase the demand on something with an inelastic supply, uh, that should increase the price. So for an investment thesis, that would be the argument. Um, but obviously, again, this thing is a risk asset. Um, we've seen it and times be very highly correlated to, to tech stocks, um, and risky assets. Um, so when I talk to people, I, I generally, I'm not somebody like you should, I'm not sailor telling people to, uh, mortgage their house and buy more Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> but like, I, I just kind of talk to them about the asset for the most part, I let people, ask questions when I talk to them. Cause I don't, I don't like, I don't like anyone preaching to me, trying to sell me things. So I'm just like, I like it. I think it's interesting. I have it as a portion of my portfolio. It would be more if I was allowed to buy more. Um, cause it's rather small to be quite honest. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the way I approach it. I don't know if that's the right way or wrong way, but I'm not yeah, somebody no, that's going to uh, preach. It's interesting. I think the more you learn about it, the more you kind of see it as a safe haven asset over a risk asset, but I can see how, and you know, people look at it and it's yeah. volatility and like, you know, I understand like risk a lot of times is measured by volatility. Um, and so it makes, it makes sense for people to view it that way right now. I, I, um, I think also thinking about it as like an aspiring store of value, like yes. it has That's to be a widely adopted store of value. Um, we're, we're on that path. We're getting there, but that's where the opportunity lies because we're not fully there yet. Right. I mean, if, if everybody woke up tomorrow and, and you know, there would be no opportunity on the upside, this asymmetric opportunity, if we weren't already there. So like we're, we're still growing there. We're still building the adoption. Um, but we think the underlying technology kind of speaks for itself and it will be around, right, for, for a long time. But I think that's, that's right. I think it's, uh, it's still early days. I mean, it's kind of a meme, but I think it's, it's still early and the ETFs are just kind of a next milestone. Um, it's funny to see this dichotomy of people like screaming when moon and people like talking about creating this new monetary authority that will be a store of value going forward and hedge against know, inflation like <laughs> and all these things. And you have like these two groups and it's just, it's, um, it's very interesting to say it, the least. It is but. very interesting. It, I mean, Bitcoin attracts like a lot of different 
uh, groups of people for different reasons, which is why there's a lot of infighting. Good, <laughs> good and bad. It distracts which is good, good and, and bad, bad, right? Wouldn't have it yeah. any other way. It's a crazy industry, but yeah, we're on a mission. We're on a mission. All right. Well, um, I think we'll end there, uh, James. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show and and sharing your expertise with this stuff. Um, um, if people want to follow your work, uh, where can they where can they go to to kind of learn more and and keep track of everything? Yeah. So, um. I'm on Twitter. That's where anyone can find me. I share a decent amount of stuff. I've shared less over the last few weeks. I'm probably, I might get back to it again. Uh, but for the most part, my real work is is on the Bloomer Terminal. So if you're a Bloomer Terminal subscriber, which um, I'm assuming some, I hope some of the people listening probably are, you can see anything I've written. Uh, I build tools on our BI dashboards on the Bloomer Terminal. Unfortunately, all of our stuff is behind that Bloomer Terminal paywall. Um, but we do, Beltunis and I and our team will take snippets of that and share um, a decent amount on social media, whether it's LinkedIn or Twitter, uh, to give people taste and give people um, insight into like how we're viewing this marketplace and, and what's happening. So um, Twitter is the number one thing, but if you're on a terminal, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime via an instant Bloomberg message or anything like that. Awesome. Well, you do great work, uh, so keep keep it up. and. Uh... Can't wait to keep track of the Coin Turkey Derby. Uh, just <laughs> keeping a notifications on your account makes it easy. <laughs> Thank you. Same well, to thanks, you, sir. Man. You also do great work. I love your guys' stuff. Thanks, man. Um, cool. We'll have you back on soon, and uh, hopefully, I'll see you again in person uh, sometime soon. So, have a great weekend. You too. Well, that was fun. I, I always like talking to um, to James because he is truly an expert at, at these ETFs. Uh, there's been so much noise and chatter around them. People, a lot of excitement, the frenzy, uh, as the show's titled. Um, but James really brings a really balanced take and you could tell that he really understands these things in and out. And so really appreciated him coming on the show and sharing that with us. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Let me know what you think. Give us a follow for this channel. It helps us expand the reach and reach a wider audience. So if you haven't subscribed to the Swan channel, Give it, a, give it a subscribe and also like, comment. Let me know what you thought. Um, we got another great guest lined up over the next few weeks. Um, also Pacific Bitcoin. Go to pacificbitcoin.com. Use the promo code SIGNAL to get 10% off. Additional 21% off if you use Bitcoin. It's going to be an excellent festival just like last year and the year before it. And that is it for Swan Signal Live. I will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening.